We're very privileged uh, today and Wednesday to have my dear and good friend of 35 years standing, Paolo Zanoni, who um, has uh, for quite a long time been a partner of Goldman Sachs and is indeed the second most senior member of the Goldman Sachs partnership. By age. By age. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and today, uh, we're going to do a very informal class with uh, facts on the slide sheet as background. Uh, we're going to have Paolo uh, talk, about, talk about how Goldman actually works, at, seen from the inside, uh, which will be a, a rare opportunity uh, to see the most uh, remarkable uh, American business firm uh, from the interior, which is it's truly a, a, a great opportunity for all of us. And then on Wednesday, uh, Paolo will do a major European case managed by Goldman Sachs, and uh, a case which uh, was in progress when he was here a year ago, and which has now come to resolution. Uh, the slide set for that is posted. That will be a little more formal than today, but still an informal, informal in style. Uh, please help me welcome Paolo Zanoni. Uh, Paolo, um, let's talk about you to begin with. Uh, you are a northern rather than a southern Italian. Centro-north, yeah. Yes. Um, is there any significance in north-south in Italy? Yes, I think significantly. Okay. <coughs> Are there, how many people of southern Italian descent in the room? Sort of, huh? Okay. What, what, how, would, how do most northern Italians look on, the, look on that distinction? Uh, <laughs> they look at that distinction like, uh, like the south was almost a colony occupied uh, or conquered uh, in 1861 and uh, never really <laughs> sort of conquered, but okay. ne never really assimilate, assimilated. Assimilated. Yeah. Uh, the, the North is the industrial and business heart of the, Italy. Is that a fair statement? The North is the most industrialized part, yes. But, but in the South, you have uh, I don't think we want to go into the Italian political economic system, but in the south you have certain areas that have a reasonably high level of industrialization. Yeah. Uh, Paolo, you came from, you first arrived in the States in what year? 1973. 1973, and you came as a graduate student in the Yale Political Science Department, I remember yeah. it well. Yeah. Paolo became an outstanding touch football player. <laughs> and Too small for that. <laughs> no, no, you were really good at it. And uh, you even picked up the raw language of the game. That's, that's, that's a size there is different. <laughs> the, uh, and you left Yale. In 78. In 78 to go to work for Johnny Agnelli yep. at Fiat. Yeah. Uh, Tell us a little about that stint. 
that's the entire I work for I work for the chairman of the board and also the owner of the controlling stakes at Fiat uh, for about uh, five or six years. Right. And after I became, I wanted to do some uh, some more operational experience, and so I went uh, to manage <coughs> the international business development department uh, at Fiat. And uh, in that capacity, I spent about five years in Washington here, because uh, we had uh, as, as chairman of Fiat USA, because we had uh, some issues with the uh, with the then U.S. government. And after I spent two years in Moscow in 1990 and 1991. And what were you looking at in Moscow? In Moscow, I was looking to acquire the largest uh, Russian manufacturer of automobiles that uh, the government, uh, first the government of the Soviet Union, and second the government of the, of the Russian Republic when the Soviet Union uh, was dismembered or disappeared uh, and decided to privatize. That company has been established by Fiat as a wholly owned uh, uh, company from wholly owned by the Soviet state about 15 years earlier. And so it was based on Fiat technology and uh, both uh, Gorbachev first and Yeltsin afterward wanted to privatize. And I was sent there to try to buy it. And successful. ultimately, you ultimately walked away from the deal, if I understand it. Yeah, yeah. Or well, we walked away because there was no deal for the simple reason that the management and the region, Samara region, wanted to become owners of the factory and, uh, and have ownership of the asset and 100% uh, control on the profits so. and on the cash flow. And so they were definitely, they were not they were not willing to sell it to, uh, okay. to a foreigner. So that's a non-starter. Then after, after the, the uh, stint in Russia? I, I did a couple of years uh, more at Fiat, and after I decided to join Goldman. Then you joined Goldman. Yeah. And you joined them as, what, what was your title at that time? At, uh, at that time, Goldman did not have managing director, as opposed to, right. so it only had vice president. Sorry. it had. Associate, sorry, uh, analyst, associate, and vice president of various degrees of seniority, mm -hmm. and uh, I joined them as uh, the last uh, degree of vice president after I became uh, managing director in '97 and uh, partner in 2000. Okay, and. Uh, Let's now turn to Goldman. The, I'm talking to, the, to these people now for a second. You'll remember the stark contrast we've drawn between the ownership form uh, of joint stock corporation, publicly traded joint stock corporation on the one hand, and a partnership on the other. Uh, can somebody help us out by uh, naming the two or three variables on which those two are most importantly different. Okay, I'll settle for one variable. Liability. Okay, limited liability in the case of the joint stock corporation, good. Another, Tal? 
Uh, liquidity. Liquidity, huge difference, right? You can't sell your partnership in Goldman. Another? Uh, partnership income is not taxed separately. Okay, the partnership is invisible in the tax code so that the proceeds reach. The, individual. the individuals get taxed. The individuals, the of course, get taxed. Okay, but it's in, a set, in effect saves one layer of taxation. Yes? The, the right or ability um, to make management decisions. Okay, so that in the case of a partnership, everyone has a management job. All the partners have management jobs. Whereas with the corporation, you have centralized management where the board appoints a chief, uh, chief executive and the chief executive, at least in theory, is responsible for appointing everyone else. Uh, and finally, how do the two do as media for raising capital? mechanisms for raising capital. Uh, back to Tal. Uh, a, corp a joint stock corporation is much more scalable. It's got greater scalability. You can raise a lot more capital than a partnership. Okay. The joint stock corporation was created as a mechanism for gathering up capital in very large quantities, and it's good at it. Now, back to Paolo. Historically, Goldman was straightforwardly a partnership. It was a partnership up to 1999, but you have read uh, uh, the case study with the IPO of Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And, <clears throat> um, and it was an extraordinary partnership with an extraordinary record of success <laughs> in nearly all of its history. Is that a fair statement? <clears throat> in 1999, it's, it's a fair statement. There are, there are a couple of exceptions. Uh, uh, 1929. Tough on a lot of people. Yes, tough on a lot of people. Uh, especially tough, almost killed the partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, there is another exception which is which is interesting for your class because usually uh, investment bank and securities firms tend to do badly, tend to be very cyclical and to do badly on the downturn and well on the upturn. There is one exception, one exception at least as far as Goldman is concerned, which is very interesting. Everybody else was doing very well in 1994 but Goldman was doing very badly, and uh, it almost killed the partnership as badly as uh, as badly as uh, 90, almost as badly in 1928, and uh, as badly as uh, the crisis for Perry Center. And and the reason the reason for that and that uh, again, uh, you know, mixed blessings. Uh, are one, of the <laughs> are one of the facts of life. The reason why Goldman was doing very badly was because Goldman has, has tried uh, very aggressively to do uh, proprietary trading, especially in fixed income. And uh, 
that was not really part of the Goldman culture and uh, the risk management and uh, the trading, uh, the trading organization of Goldman was very bad. And uh, in 19, toward the end of 1994, second half of 1994, Goldman started having losses that at that time were staggering. Or especially for a partnership, and almost the capital—the uh, capital of the partnership—was almost wiped out. And uh, actually, that's where—that's uh, where, the, where the firm had the remarkable ability of select a group of leaders that uh, knew, that came from trading, knew proprietary trading very well, even if some of them were not born in, the, in that same organization, and were able to restructure. Uh, the, trading, uh, the trading philosophy, and especially the risk management function of uh, Goldman. And probably one of the reasons why Goldman has done not so badly in the credit crunch is because of that overhaul of, uh, the, risk, of the risk management uh, and, of, uh, uh, and of the trading uh, format, style, and control of the autonomy of the traders. Okay. Actually, the two people that did it, one was Corzine, who was the managing partner when the firm went public, and the other was uh, Lloyd Blankfein, who is the CEO today. Uh -huh. And Corzine may be available shortly. It's difficult to come back to Goldman. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I think he wants to. But. The uh, move, the, the, just notice, notice the uh, style in which Paolo just said something. He said, Goldman has done fairly well in the current crisis. Now, that's a huge understatement. Goldman has blown the doors off the current crisis. The end of 2008 wasn't a nice period. It was an ugly period, but compared with all its competitors, in this and in many other matters, Goldman has been absolutely tops. And part of the culture is not to, not, sort of chest thumping is not the Goldman style. There's a very understated style that emerges uh, and which Paolo, I think, embodies. Um, but now the move to a corporation, corporate ownership form uh, has an obvious upside in raising capital. Uh, but an apparent downside in changing the incentives uh, for top management in a way that might, at first blush, seem likely to undermine the cultural strengths of the historical partnership. Yeah. And, and why don't I shut up for quite a while now and let's get you talking about about how that has been accomplished and how it works. And uh, somewhere or another, we ought to talk about how people uh, are recruited to the partnership and, and to leadership roles in the firm and how that might relate to the style of, of management that you, that you get with Goldman. 
Yeah, I'm sure that you. Um, I'm sure that in Doug's course you've gone, you've gone through it, and partly in the case that I've read. Uh, the two advantages of a partnership, especially in the investment banking world and uh, a securities firm, are, in my opinion, one is that, uh, as as opposed to the joint stock corporation, which uh, Doug, that Doug discussed with you. In a partnership, uh, there is no split between uh, management and ownership. The owners of the capital of the firm are also the managers of the company. And so that's, that's of course, create a set of incentives but by not distinguishing between provider capitals and, uh, uh, and, the, and the people that have the control of the operation of the firm. In Goldman, Every generation of partners, leaders, have always been convinced that this was a great advantage. Uh, the other advantage that you have is that, uh, uh, and this is an advantage especially in uh, investment banking and in securities firm, which are people business. They have no, if you look at these, if you look at these companies, that are remarkable in the amount of sales or revenues that they have they have no fixed capital. They have no buildings. Most of the buildings are leased. They have no plant and equipment. They have no patents. It's just a people's business. And so when you are running a people's business, uh, one of your core competences has got to be the ability of coordinate the behavior to those people. 3,000, 4,000, 20,000. And Goldman has always been convinced that the partnership structure is uh, ideal to coordinate the behavior of uh, the top echelon of the firm. And so the real challenge that uh, uh, Goldman was facing when Goldman decided to go public was to try to combine the advantages of the joint stock corporation, especially in raising permanent capital, because the partnership capital is not permanent. It's limited, but if you are very successful, the limitations are not so much on size as they are on the availability of that capital for a long period of time. Because of course you can put restriction on the partners on taking away the capital when they become limited, but those restrictions will just prolong the, their ability to take capital out, but they, if not, nobody would like to be a partner if, they, if the capital cannot be taken out. So Goldman tried to, con Goldman, the then leadership of Goldman tried to combine the advantages of the partnership as far as having the owner management, uh, to get the owners, managers, manage the company and the ability to coordinate behavior. So what Goldman tried to do, and is a unique form of corporate governance, is a partnership that is also a joint stock company. And so, for instance, the title of partner was not eliminated, and Goldman built a structure in which partners are rewarded and incentivized in a different way from the other stockholders. Uh, the, other thing that, uh, the other thing that Goldman decided to do was 
which is unusual in joint stock company, and you won't find it in any other partnership that has become a joint stock company, was to maintain the structure of the uh, selection of leadership, i.e. the selection of the partners almost as it was before it became a joint stock company. Okay, maybe. So what you have, yeah. let me try to, what you have is that you have the legal form of a joint stock liability company imposed into an organization that as organizational structure and institution of government, except at the top, has maintained the same institution and the same type of leadership selection that you had in the partnership, uh, let's say, partnership pre-IPO. Okay. So let's talk about this leadership selection process, beginning with the entering classes of employees. Usually, uh, usually when you enter Goldman, you are given a class, like you are given a class when you enter Yale. You are the class of uh, 2007, 2008. We, we, we designate them by the year oh, they Oh, by the year, that's correct. No? We designate them by the year, by the year in, which, in which they start. And uh, there is some sort of cursus honorum in which uh, you are generally considered for partnership once uh, you have spent a fair amount of time at the firm and uh, once uh, you, have been, uh, you have done a stint as a managing director. And uh, when, uh, your, when your class is up for partnership. Now how big are these classes, more or less? Depends. But let's say that they are a few hundred people. 500, maybe? No, a little less. Because, uh, four, between 400 and 200. It also depends, because you know. Uh, the partnership have been, it's, it's not, there is no ratio. When we went public, the partnership, the partners were about 200 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. They were still less than 300 three years ago or four years ago. Now they are more than 400. Mm -hmm. They would be a lot less in 2010. Okay, so we've got these groups of a few hundred. And at a certain point, it comes time. It comes to time decide. to be considered. It's time for someone that has done that they've had a normal career. It comes time to be considered. And uh, the way the way the way the selection works is the partners of each division make two or three lists of all the candidates of their own division. Uh, an A list, a B list, and a C list. The A list is uh, the best candidate. The B list is the candidates that are somewhere in between. And the C list is the candidates that, are not, uh, that do not have a lot of chances in that particular year. The partnership selection gets done every two years, even years. 2000, 2002, 2004, 6, 8, 10. Uh, once these uh, selection, when this first selection has been done, what the firm does is takes a group of people and charge them with the task 
of asking uh, the community of uh, mostly of the professionals about the candidates. And so there are a group of people that uh, conduct rigorous, reasonably rigorous interview, interviews among uh, everyone that has worked with the, everyone. A large number of the people of the professionals that worked with the partner's candidate, be them more senior peers or more junior, to try to gauge uh, the quality of that individual and even more, the quality of that individual vis-a-vis -vis the group that is being considered as partner. And this is a process that, it sounds easy, but is a process that takes about two months. And if, if I remember our conversation correctly, the firm insists on people making pairwise comparisons. The firm insists on people make, doing a qualitative analysis and after making make a ranking of everybody they know, first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, and in certain cases making pairwise, when there are two candidates that are in a similar position, making pairwise comparison, which is a, which is a nice, which is an old way to do leadership selection because my understanding, but it my, it, it's, it's an understanding, is that it was reasonably well used in the Catholic Church uh, orders or in the 12th, 11th century. Right. So and actually, there is someone that proposed that in electing the Pope, the Pope had to be elected doing pairwise comparison of the candidates. Well, it, the Roman Catholic Church is one of the few organizations with a more distinguished administrative history than Goldman Sachs. Oh, yes. no, no, I don't know one of the few, but definitely. Um, so I think that Goldman consciously or unconsciously copied some of the, right. some of the, at least some of the criteria used by the Catholic Church. Now, as you listen to this, think about what, what this process would do to your thinking if you were a junior person at Goldman Sachs. Right? This is all designed to shape and mold a certain kind of, pers of persona and management style. Now, what and behavior, you mentioned and behavior, pardon, and, be and behavior in your business in your, day in your yes. daily business. So, and you you mentioned in in our conversation this morning a, an element of the process called cross roughing. The, the cross roughing is the one that Jay mentioned. Sir, bridge player in the room. Cross-roughing is a bridge term. I, I tried to find out what it means exactly. Let me just, no is there not one bridge player in this room? It's an interesting fact. I think it. Lots of poker players, but very few bridge players. Um, so what's cross-roughing in this process? Is is a process of uh, a group of people selected to search about the, the one that I've just described. Yeah. They, they search about the qualities of the various, uh, of the various candidates. But they're from, it's from, they, they're not in, they're not, they are not in the, the same division. in their no. division, but they are not in division. the same division. They belong to another division. Because you know, when you look at an organization, you have to think about, about the organization, ah, I get too theoretical, sorry, too abstract. You have to think about the organization in two dimensions. 
okay? Vertical and horizontal. If you take the divisions, they are like the business unit in your normal industrial organization. And they cut vertical. If you take the partnership, it cuts the organization horizontal. So if you want to have a very effective organization, you should have, you should have a good blend and the two mix of horizontal, of horizontal cleavages, let's say, and vertical ones. So the way the selection to the partnership is done, because of course you cannot have a group of people that look at 500 candidates or 400 candidates. You do it by division. Mm -hmm. The first selection is done by division. When, when you do the list, the lists are done by the division. But afterward, since, uh, you, since uh, the people that will do the selection are the gatekeeper to an horizontal cleavage and an horizontal organization, they are not, those, that, that gates are not kept by people from the same division, but they are kept by people from another division because you are moved to, a totally, because you are moved to an horizontal organization that should coordinate the top of the various vertical divisions. So this is a way, in part, of checking the tendency of divisions to become inward-looking. Yeah, becoming silos. Silos. I heard last week a great expression for this. For a frog at the bottom of the well, the sky is very small. And that's certainly true in many organizations, right, where people get into their little part and they're not seeing what other people are seeing across other divisions. Not only, and having gone through a fair amount of restructuring in my professional life, both in an industrial organization, in a partnership, and uh, in a, an investment bank that was a limited liability company, when you get to a restructure, it is very difficult to make make a rational decision if the organization is mostly based on vertical division. Mm -hmm. because, because the vertical logic limits to some extent, or not to some extent, limits to a major extent the horizontal movement of individuals. Right. And so you tend to consider them only on a vertical scale. And when on the contrary you are trying to restructure the organization or change the organization or reduce the number or develop new business units, you have to be able to cut across the vertical division because if not you utilize your manpower badly and you give your people a limited set of choice. They can only move either up or down but not sideways. Or the move sideways becomes very difficult. And if the move sideways becomes very difficult, it becomes very difficult for the organization to follow new business opportunities. Because those, those tend to be lateral. It's the increase in scope, it's not the increase in depth. The, um, sorry, we tend to be, I no, don't know, we tend to become too abstract. Sorry, no, no, sorry, I'm sorry. The, uh, what are the qualities that, um, are most important to cultivate. Students, have, you've seen the 14 commandments in the case. 14 business principles. Business principles seen from inside, commandments seen from outside. Um, what, 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 what are we trying to achieve here in the, the behavior of the partnership? 
and those who aspire to be in the partnership. What would be the top two or three qualities we're aiming for? <laughs> A reasonable degree of autonomy and independence, but without getting to uh, the independent, without pushing the independent to some extreme that it get disruptive mm -hmm. for the organization. So if you want, you try, to you try to strike a balance between independence, creativity, and conformity. And historically, I think Goldman has put a premium to some extent on conformity versus creativity. I think that there are a fair amount there are a fair amount of, uh, uh, of innovations in which Goldman has come second or third, and other firms have, had, have been a lot more creative, or somewhat more creative. So you try to strike that balance, uh, and of course, one of the characteristics of that balance is the, adheren the adherence to a very a reasonably strict belief system. Okay. Or corporate culture. Uh, how about chest thumping and a conspicuous display of wealth? Chest thumping definitely is, uh, is out. out. You want the conspicuous display of wealth, I would say, consider the standard of the industry is not too bad, but consider the standard of the industry. If you look at it from, if you look at it from, uh, from, the out, from outside the industry, it's hard to judge. But uh, seeing it from the out, seeing it from the inside, at least it's frowned upon. It's, uh, it's not considered, uh, and actually it's sanctioned to some, to some extent. Well, and, and, to some extent. and it can actually, if I'm not mistaken, damage a Goldman career if you are sort of wildly ostentatious uh, and pick up $10,000 restaurant tabs and that sort of thing. Yeah, it usually, it usually, you usually don't do it twice. Um, so Goldman, let's... What is the other? Let me think about, for a moment, uh, about another characteristic. Within the limits, within the limits of uh, the adherence to a strict belief system, and I know the two things seems, seems uh, contradictory, it also pushes you to be entrepreneurial because de facto, Partners run their own business units. Mm -hmm. And the, the levels of hierarchy are very, very, very short. The organization is very flat. And one of the reasons why it's flat is in try to for, trying to foster entrepreneurship especially in the partners. Because see, the business in which Goldman operates, the industry in which Goldman operates, and you will see it, I try to give some examples in the printout that you have, changes very, very quickly. So for instance, if you take, if you take a picture, we, we, don't, we don't give those details for many, many reasons, one of which is that they change too often. If you take the 36, let's say 36, the 30 major business line of Goldman five years ago, 
they are not the same as what they are today. So, because the environment changes so fast that if you are, if you still try to operate and maximize or be efficient in the business unit of yesterday or of this morning, mostly you are, so if you are a good manager, maybe you are a bad entrepreneur and you are missing new opportunities that the changes in the environment creates. So what the firm is trying to do is to have a, to have a group of leaders that more or less think along similar lines, but that are able to capture new opportunities and new, a new business line. Let's take, let's for instance, let's try to make some examples. Not, we, uh, we are under risk of being too, too, uh, too abstract. Let's take, for instance, I'm sure that uh, some of you, most of you, are familiar with the crisis of the Savings and Loan Association in the US of the end of the 1980s. Before that crisis, Goldman Sachs had never done a real estate principal investment. Never. Didn't even own the building where they were. Because they thought that there was no capabilities inside the firm for making investment. Actually, when the, uh, what was the National Trust or whatever, what was, what was the trust that the federal government? RTC? Yeah. When they started, when the RTC or at least the National Trust or the federal, uh, the federal owner yeah. of all the real estate property, because if you remember, most of the, most of the crisis originated from the loans that the, that the Saving and Loan Association have done, especially to real estate developers. So of course, the, uh, the, federal, the federal authority that, uh, the federal authority that, uh, that ran, that ran, that ran, that, uh, that, sorry, the, the bureaucrats in good sense, that ran that authority started selling a lot of real estate, cheap, all over, all over the United States. And it was obvious that there was a business opportunity there, but it was also obvious that Goldman didn't know anything on how to do it because, I mean, IPOs, uh, rate defense, trading of stock, of, of loans, yes, but never real estate. And an exceedingly smart person, who, by the way, happens to be a Yale graduate, of course, saw the opportunity, saw the lack of capability, and decided to form a partnership with someone that knew a lot about real estate all over the United States and didn't have any capital. And Goldman started buying real estate and real estate loans for themselves or for ourselves and for investors. And uh, the, the massive uh, investment uh, history of Goldman in real estate, both real estate asset and real estate loan started then just because of the opportunity, because of the opportunity offered by this uh, trust corporation that was selling a large amount of real estate, obviously very cheap, and, and uh, the ability of one of the partners to see that there was an opportunity, but that inside, inside the firm there was no capability on understanding which one was cheap and which one was not cheap. It seemed cheap, but maybe it's too, too expensive, or it, it would have been a bad investment anyway. 
And at the end, the partner that we had uh, got tired, made too much money, and, uh, but he had transferred enough uh, knowledge to the partners and uh, we bought it out and made, uh, and made Wito. The same is true with our huge private equity. We, when I joined the firm, we didn't do much of private equity. We did it on behalf of clients. We advised them when they are buying or selling companies, but we didn't do it on our own. And on the contrary, immediately after the crisis of the 2000s, the dot-com dot crisis, right. we started seeing an opportunity and started seeing an opportunity that uh, you were going to make a lot more money if you did it on your own than if you, if you advised Blackstone. A lot, of, a lot of banks saw it. However, this is a very interesting, I, I, we, I forgot when. A lot of banks saw it, but they decided not to do it for one very basic and valid reason. The fact that if you do private equity, you start competing with your clients. And that is supposed to be the scene number one in a service organization. However, the hubris of Goldman was such that Goldman believed that they were smart enough and good enough to be able to manage the conflicts. So it was a conscious decision. There was a debate. I remember it because I was part of the debate. I was not part, unfortunately, of the debate of going public. But I was, I was on the outside. Actually, I was sort of, can we joke? Yeah. I was actually cheated because I thought I was going to be in the next partnership. And so the partnership was going public in 99, and I was up for election in 2000. The big prize was postponed or snatched or limited. So it's actually, a pretty good prize, as we all know. Yeah, it, it was a very good prize. Uh, but I was part of the private equity one. Can I get you to talk for a minute about how Goldman manages its relationship with power in government and other, other branches of society, mm -hmm. not just in the states, but worldwide? As me and you have discussed this, I think that investment banking is a business where culture is very important. And and all of you that, uh, that are going to be on Wednesday will see that uh, when I speak about, when I speak about uh, ANL and DESA takeover, the financial variables are important, but I would say the variables that determine the winning or losing sometimes are what we call soft, soft variables that have little to do with price and finance. And for a global firm that operates in this business, it is very, very difficult, if not impossible, to be able to understand the complexities of the business culture in which it operates. So your best way, your best way to, uh, to understand those complexities and to avoid the landmines that are in different business culture is to get someone that knows the business culture of that particular culture very well so you end up selecting a group of advisors in any nation in which you operate that have a, a very deep understanding of that particular business culture and can guide you and your client 
so that uh, so that uh, so that particular so that particular cat. I want to give you an example. That is, so if not, we are too abstract. I want to give you an example that it's uh, actually is personal to some extent. Goldman was very late compared to the other firm in moving overseas. And uh, Goldman started having a small operation in London in 87, when JP Morgan was big, when Lehman was big, when Merrill was big. Merrill, now Merrill started a little later, but definitely when Morgan Stanley was big. And at one point, the, the problem that, uh, uh, that, go, that the Goldman people sent overseas faced was how do we get, how do we enlarge in Europe without making too many mistakes? The usual traditional way of American firms to do that was to send investment bankers from the US and waited until they learned the various cultures. A very smart banker at Goldman, who, by the way, is one of the first graduates of this SOM, John Thornton, John Thornton when yeah. he had the responsibility of Europe, he said, and the reason why I know it, and I say it's personal, because that's the way in which I was recruited. He said, wait a second, here we have to do something totally different. We have to select for every nation where you, we operate someone that maybe is not a banker, who cares, but that knows that business culture very well. And so we had a generation of lateral hires. Me, my colleague in France, one in Spain, one in Germany, one in England, one in Holland, one in Sweden. None of them came from investment banking. Very few of them came from banking. My French colleague came from the States. And when I, when I did my interview with John Thornton for a selection, I said, he said, what would, he said, what would I like to do? I said, how can I think about going to investment banking? I can't even count. I can't count now. I can't balance a checkbook. This is the truth. He said, ah, oh, we can. He said, don't worry. We have hundreds of people that can do that. And we will give you a smart VP that knows everything about investment banking. But can you operate in the Italian business environment? I say, I think. Yes, I think so. He said, uh, do you under, we want to have 20 clients, no more in Italy, 15 clients. Do you know which client we want and which we don't? And I say, I think so. And he said, do you know the way the client we want operate inside? I said, I think so. I said, okay. Who cares if you can't balance a checkbook? Um, and that Goldman became the first, the first investment bank in Europe from 94 to 97, in three years. When in 1993, in it was well below everybody else. And it is due to that particular creativity of John Thornton, who saw it clearly. I said, listen, this is a cultural business. How can I send an American or a British in Italy? They don't even speak the language. No. Or in France. They, they, I mean, how can you? Do you, ever, you ever try to do a deal in France? Or in Spain? Even for someone that has had some sort of uh, exposure to different business culture like, like myself, ah, ah, I would never be able to do it. Like someone else would like to try to do, in, to do it in Italy, try to understand how fiat works, or how anal thinks, or how the Unicredito operates. So when in the, in the context of the states, uh, you sent a, uh, 
beaten up Dartmouth linebacker yeah. to Washington. No, Hank was, now, the story about Hank is, he has always been a Republican, okay? You, you, wanna, you wanna give your little imitation of his voice style? Hello. No, his, voice, his real voice style was a real imitation. Paolo, go and get the business. <laughs> <laughs> At three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so, you know, Hank has always been a, has always been a Republican. He, if you talk to him, he ascribed his success at Goldman with the fact that he didn't know what to do when he got out of the Harvard Business School, and he went to work for the Nixon White House in the domestic affair division, mm -hmm. and he finds himself at 24, 25, immediately after Watergate, that everybody above him is either in jail or had to resign. So he becomes the most senior person in that, uh, the most senior person in that, uh, in that department, and he has to deal with the CEO. He has to deal for a year and a half with, uh, with the CEOs of, uh, of large corporations, and, uh, and he learns. And at the end, he decided he doesn't like the government, and uh, he tries to get a job at Goldman, and he gets hired. And what he was always telling me is, say, see, the real skill that I had was not what they taught me at the Harvard Business School, but the fact that I spent a year and a half in interacting with CEO and CFOs from the largest corporation because I was at the White House and there was nobody that was more senior than me. Okay, so now. He was, he, so he had been, Bush tried to get him to be the Secretary of the Treasury, to my knowledge, which is limited, at least twice before he accepted. Yeah. And at one point he decided that uh, it was time to let uh, Blankfein be the chairman and that was the perfect exit. Okay, last question for today. A simple observation would be that Goldman has essentially bet its, bet its life on the quality of people. Just meaning all the things you're talking about, plus something to do with just sheer mental horsepower. Smart people. There is a, there is a reasonable amount of smart people. Uh, Wait. Don't overstate here, Paolo. No, there is a reasonable amount of smart people, but do you know what the characteristic, you, you know it, I mean, everybody who goes to an Ivy League school would know it. Determination, it's almost as important as brain power. Mm -hmm. And definitely, Goldman, definitely you will not get a chance, not, not even a becoming a VP, not a partner, if you are not determined. The associate and the analyst work 100 hours per week for years, for five years, seven years, 10 years. The partners work 70 or 80 hours per week until they retire. Unless yeah. you are ready to do that, no way. And if the phone rings? Yeah, if the phone rings. I told you, Hank, Hank was used to, when he was the chairman, Hank was used to listen to voicemail, because now we communicate via email. Then we communicated only via voicemail. In a firm that was, that had, uh, what, 25 billion in revenues, you could leave a voicemail to Hank Paulson, and unless he was on a plane, you got an answer in less than five hours. And if he was on a plane, it depends how long the, 
the flight was. But 15 hours, you got the answer after 15 hours. Terrific. So please review the slides for Wednesday. And let's thank Paolo for this very interesting Thank you. Thank you.